Hi everyone, I'm Sashia, the founder of Wana and a host of this podcast, Wana Talks. Welcome. Wana is a consultancy and education platform with a focus on climate, gender, security, and intersection between them. In this podcast, we bring unique and underrepresented as well as more known voices of diverse experts, activists, and storytellers. Today I'm having a guest who is one of the most known feminists in Brussels, as, as far as I know. Um, she made it to most influential women in Brussels by political newspaper in 2016 and also by Apolitical, made it to top 100 most influential people in gender policy in 2018 and 19. And here I'm talking about Joanna Maycock. Welcome. Thank you, Sophia. It's lovely to be, be here on the podcast with you. Joanna, do you want to introduce yourself beyond the, the fancy titles that I just named? Sure, thank you, Sophia. Um, yeah, so I'm, um, as you said, Joanna Maycock. I've been living and working in Brussels actually for 30 years, more than 30 years, um, always working in uh, NGOs and civil society, really around uh, mobilizing, lobbying on social justice issues and predominantly on gender equality and women's rights. So. I've um, I've worked for issues around global uh, women's rights, gender equality, and solidarity, and decolonization. I've worked also on migration a long time ago now, um, and then most recently I was the secretary general of the European Women's Lobby, which is um, a vast network of women's organisations campaigning for a feminist Europe. Um, I love living in Brussels. I love working in Brussels. I also love living here. It's such a dynamic and cosmopolitan place um, where you meet people from from everywhere who are thinking about the world and and changing the world. But it's also a very fun place to live, and I I, I love I love being here. Awesome. But what 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 actually brought you to Brussels, and uh, where does your story from for gender equality starts from? Because I mean, it probably was a while ago, but still, because you are not Belgian originally, so what brought you here? Yeah, so I'm uh, I was born in the UK, and I have dual nationality, British and Belgian. Um, but actually, my mother is Dutch; she's from the Netherlands, and uh, so I always grew up um, partly in the UK, partly in France, but also with this. Um, multiple identity um, and I would say I don't remember a time when I wasn't concerned about gender inequality and injustice and certainly I remember I always remember my mom when she was teaching me to read uh, deconstructing the reading books because they had so many gender stereotypes in them you know where the little girl would be helping her mom in the kitchen and the little boy would be out playing with boat with his dad and my mom would stop and have a discussion with me about uh, what was wrong with that a particular image. So growing up in the 70s, which of course was a time of great um, consciousness raising around women's rights and feminism, but also with parents who were both really feminist and uh, believed in equality more widely in society. Um, and certainly when it came to equality between women and men. So for me, it was always uh, this, this striving for fairness and equality and, um, seemed completely normal and I've always been outraged when I saw that that wasn't actually happening in reality and sometimes a bit surprised still to this day um, that there is so much uh, prejudice and discrimination and inequality and of course you know at that 
and, and childhood, I perhaps was less aware of the structural underpinnings of that. But certainly, um, as as my political awareness and consciousness grew, I became aware that this wasn't just about individuals um, and individual situations, but it was actually about how our broader societies are are really built and constructed. So when I came to Brussels, I actually came here straight out of university and I came for a one-year internship, actually. I was working for um, a consortium of universities and water boards who had a a European-funded program for student exchange, actually. Um, And they used one of their grants. It was like an Erasmus, but it wasn't Erasmus. It was called Comet at the time. Um, they used one of their grants to fund an internship within their office. So it was a um, a kind of administrative role, really helping to administer the grant. And I'd never been to Brussels before, but I thought that could be quite fun. As very often, um, it was a period of recession as well in the early 90s. So it was quite hard to find jobs in the UK. And I really had no idea what I wanted to do, um, except that I definitely knew I wanted to work for... Um, more equality for more um social inclusion i would say was very i was very concerned about and i really didn't know what kind of work i would do i'd studied politics economics and sociology so kind of public policy was what i was looking at so i was thinking perhaps of working for civil service or foreign service or something but i didn't really know so i thought why not go and spend a year in brussels that sounds like it could be quite fun and i really fell in love with brussels I had a very unusual experience, actually, because most of my colleagues were Belgian. So I didn't have that classic, you know, internship in the European institutions. It was really mostly Belgian. Uh, So I was very quickly kind of integrated into more Belgian Brussels. um, And then only later kind of got to know other British and and other other people uh, from other nationalities, really. Um, And from there, I, I worked there for less than a year actually because I decided quite quickly that I wanted to stay a bit longer in Brussels. I thought it was a fantastic city. I still love it now. Uh, and then it was much more run down and anarchic and re- actually a very cheap place to live, if you can believe that. It was very cheap compared with most British cities or even my other capital cities. And, um, and it was a lot of fun. So I thought I'll stay here a bit longer. And so I, I moved jobs then and I went to work for the International Organization for Migration, um, which was only a very small office at the time and was kind of representing um, the organization to Belgium, Luxembourg, and then to the EU. I won't talk in depth about this, but it was uh, just to remind you how long ago that was. Uh, the EU had no competence on migration or asylum. And it was just really just after the collapse of the Soviet Union. It was in the middle of the wars in the Balkans. Uh, so there were lots of issues around migration, asylum, refugees. Um, then uh, the emerging from that and emerging particularly from the evolving accession processes, there was a whole exercise in building and creating EU migration and asylum policy which actually led me to want to leave that world because I could see the construction of moving from the, the, um, the I suppose, the, the processes of inclusion and accepting and opening arms to migrants and people coming from all over Europe. I could see that that construction was actually closing 
the and building the fortress Europe that we now know and hate. And I just thought this is not where I want to be working. So I moved then into um, uh, an organization called Action Aid International, which worked to uh, advance um, women's rights and gender equality globally, uh, which fights poverty and which had a really rights-based political approach to that. So it was really a major part of my political education and particularly my feminist education. So at the International Organization for Migration, I had been the gender focal point and I'd worked on um, particularly trafficking in women, but other issues around women migrants, right? So that would have been in the late 90s. And then in, um, in Action Aid, I really had the opportunity to meet the most incredible feminists from around the world. Um, and particularly inspired by feminist leaders from Africa, Asia and Latin America in that, in that process, in that education. So the whole new phase, really, of, of seeing the patriarchal underpinnings of, of uh, women's inequality and discrimination uh, and also some of the solutions to building women's uh, voice leadership, deconstructing the patriarchy, but doing that in a very practical way, both inside the organisation and in the, the wider world. So that was a job that was very, a multiple of jobs actually in a very global sense. So I was always based out of Brussels. So I worked uh, across all continents in the world. Uh, I traveled extensively, met with the most incredible women, um, women leaders and women colleagues around, around the world. And, you know, it's really a, a phenomenal experience, actually. I don't know if that tells you what, a little bit of my, my kind of background and the story. So really... I guess being an internationalist, um, being a European came from very much from my family, from my both sides of my family, my mum's side and my dad's side. Um, being a feminist or, and being a being concerned with social justice and equality also was very much learnt um, from from home and from my surroundings. And you know, I speak to people I was at school with; they always uh, say it was very obvious that I would end up doing what I did because I was always campaigning for something, for some kind of equality in school or in the curriculum or something like that. So it, these things are often rooted, but also I think you become very aware of injustice when you live in another country, because I think you, you become, um, you become very, and I see this a lot of speaking to women, particularly feminists, young feminists around the world, often their feminist awakening is when they go and live somewhere else or spend some time somewhere else, because you become kind of very used to the norms and the gender norms that are around you often. And then when you see a different, whether it's either better or worse or different, you see that actually how far those are embedded very deeply in, in the society you live in and how they, therefore, we construct them or men construct them and we can undo them. So it kind of helps people on their, on their women's rights or their feminist journey often. Interesting. No, it's, it's quite fascinating. And also hearing that you actually started I mean, for me, it even sounds frustrating that you already knew about gender policies in the 70s and we still keep talking about it and we still keep fighting for the same thing. And maybe this will be one of the questions later on what keeps you going, actually, because uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit younger. And then in my case, it it has been coming from a family as well, but it was more because of the injustices in my family that I was looking at and I was seeing that I don't want to have it the same way. And um, then I started thinking if I can do something about it. And then I saw that it's not only my family, but actually many families around me and not only in Ukraine, but in other countries as well. So that's how kind of the rebel in me was uh, evoken. But also funny to hear that you came to Brussels for an internship and then stayed. It also sounds quite a 
in a way, stereotypical story. I think everyone comes to Brussels for an internship and they're like, oh, it's going to be just six months or just one year. And then, and then we end up staying, falling in love, loving the people, complaining about Brussels, but still loving it in, in a different way. So quite, quite interesting. And an impressive story that, yeah, the gender equality has been something that was on your mind and on your professional path since the beginning. So maybe you can tell me what keeps you going. And also, if I could combine it already, because the podcast is on climate, gender, security, if you could tell me where does climate change come in? Because I know that you work on that topic right now as well. Did it come in recently? And how did it come in into your way as well? Like, did you start feeling that the climate change is something that all of us have to start talking about? And it actually has a huge intersection with gender? Or was it also more like a personal journey? Right, thank you. So, um, you know, when I when I talked about how for me the struggle for women's rights the, and being a feminist is one of actually deep structural and system change, um, for me it's very clearly not about just having a few more women uh, and a few more women's voices in a system that's really not working. Uh, though it still matters to have more women in the, the current system because that's how you start to deconstruct and change it and transform it. Um, but we are we are I think. There's a level of consciousness now uh, that wasn't there 10 years ago even about how deeply the system is flawed, how deeply our systems globally are, um, are bad for the planet, are bad for animals on the planet and nature, are bad for people, uh, are bad for ourselves. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of searching about so what does that mean in terms of the systems change we want to bring and how do we make that fair and just? Um, and we're in the middle of that systems change, right? We're in the middle of a, of a transition or a transformation um, that, that will, will take decades, undoubtedly, but we're already in the middle of it. So for me, um, that was overdue and we needed that, that acknowledgement, that consciousness. And, um, and of, I think for many people that has come from a, a, a fear or a recognition of the extent of, of climate change and the climate catastrophe that we're living through. And that we need to therefore rethink our economic system and the way we live. Um, for me, it was already clear, having worked for over a decade uh, globally with uh, an organization that lifted up the voices of and mobilized some of the world's most excluded women and people, um, that the system was already in crisis, right? And those people very clearly were, and particularly women and children um, who live in extreme poverty or extreme exclusion are already the people, not only the victims of climate change or war, but also the agents of change. They're the people who, the women at the front line of fighting climate change, of building communities and societies that are more resilient uh, in the face of war and insecurity. Um, and so, and so too often they are excluded and their voice and perspective is excluded from the response of the international community. So, you know, when I was at ActionAid, we were really at that time going against the grain in investing our, for example, our disaster preparedness or our um, emergency response on um, supporting the leadership of women. And that meant actually listening to them and trusting them, not coming in with design programs and guys in suits telling them what to do, but saying that, how do you want to live and how is this particular disaster an opportunity to change power? 
and to change power within your community or within your family. Um, and we, if we can make a small part in giving you power or uh, not giving you power sounds very paternalistic, but in helping you release your power, then that can itself uh, be, be a transformative process and more sustainable in the long run. So this is something I've seen and known for a very long time. Um, and not just, as I said, and I want to emphasize placing women as victims of these processes, but women as agents of change who have been excluded from the opportunity to actually shape our society. And you know it, Sophia, because you work on UN security resolution, um, that, that the, um, that the commitments that international the community have made to including the voice of women and women's organizations is regularly just ignored, is regularly ignored. And we know that if it wasn't ignored, the world would be a very different place. So for me also, if you um, think about systems change, then you're thinking about systems and the systems are not separate. So the, the, the systems that... Um, perpetuate poverty, the systems which destroy the planet, the systems which perpetuate inequality, uh, racism, um, sexism, homophobia, they're all part of the same, the same system. And it's a system which is a patriarchal system built on um, an uneven distribution of power. And it's not just a consequence, it's actually at the core of the patriarchal system is that you have power over others. And so there is a an understanding of power that some people have it and some people don't. And if I want more, you have to have less. So it's a kind of zero-sum game of power. Um, and in that system, you have to compete for more power and resources. Uh, you have to understand that resources are finite and power is finite, but also resources are finite, so you have to fight for those, those resources. And that means you have to have power over others. And so men have power over women. Uh, humans have power over nature, different Groups have power over others. Different races have power over others or, uh, or groups. So that is embedded in the patriarchal system, which therefore is um, basically is embedded in a system of extraction, of extraction and violence. So you have to oppress others to have power over them. You have to extract their labor. You have to um, extract from, the, from nature as well because you see humans as being over nature. You have to... Um, uh, kill animals in, in their billions in order to feed humans. You know, it sort of constructs a whole system which is, um, which is not working for the planet or people anymore, if it ever did. And so you can't, you can't um, for me, you can't fight for, for women's rights or gender equality if you don't understand that we need a wider systems change. That means changing our financial system, our economic system, the way we budget, the way we tax, the way we invest in everything from transport to... Uh, to the way we collect rubbish. Um, it also means that you can't address uh, climate, the climate catastrophe and you can't find long-term sustainable solutions without understanding the gender dimension of climate um, and, the, and the current climate um, disaster, which is an inevitable consequence of rampant um, neoliberal capitalism and extractive capitalism. So we need to create a whole new system which is based on care and is based on love and is based on those cooperation uh, is based on a different understanding of power a different understanding of power that is about something we can grow if we work together and share it and build it and live that in a very different way that moves from competition to genuine collaboration um cooperation that moves from from violence 
and violence uh, of oppression and exclusion and silencing that is embedded in our society so deeply and that women are the first victims and survivors of to a society based on care and care for ourselves, care for others, care for society, care for the planet is all part of the same, the same thing. And then finally, I have to say this, is, uh, this has to be intersectional as well, if that's not obvious from what I've already said. This is also about uh, inclusion. And inclusion um, is an overused term now, but it means really understanding the systemic barriers to people's full participation and doing everything you can to dismantle those barriers in our, in our minds, in our systems, in our, uh, in our workplaces. So it's genuine inclusion because the um, exclusion that women uh, face is exacerbated and mul multiplied by different um, forms of discrimination they may face from where they live to what class they're born into, to their current economic situation or employment situation, their race, ethnicity, um, uh, their ability, disability, their age, uh, their sexuality, so many different factors are at play. Um, so it has to be intersectional and it has to, it has to be a very, very intentional uh, part of any, anything. So in terms of what I'm doing now and uh, what keeps me going, I have to say that I, uh, the, the situation for women and girls have so vastly improved in my lifetime in this part of the world. And I think even the statistics show that they have improved more or less everywhere in the world. And there are, of course, extreme exceptions or places where conflict, active conflict is ongoing, like Ukraine, um, but also extreme, um, extreme places which are uh, like Afghanistan, where women have no rights whatsoever. And, but generally the trends across the world are to see women and girls getting more education, having better access to healthcare, having more access to voice and power, uh, having an improved uh, economic or employment situation, you know, over the last 50 years. What, what, um, so if you look at the very long term, you can absolutely feel change. And you can, I can take that down to a micro level and just say, if I, if I could take a step back into the workplaces I first stepped into in the, in the 90s, they would be unrecognizable. Right from today's workplaces in terms of uh, seeing women in leadership roles. There were none in Brussels in the 90s. I think there was like one or two European commissioners and they were like, and, you know, people, but nobody, no women really, very few women running or NGOs or organizations, very few women in uh, director roles, um, but also just like completely accepted sexism, racism and homophobia in the workplace. So those sort of, at that micro level, you know, you've seen absolute transformation of women's lives and women's lives at work in the last 50 years. Um, and yet there's still, there's still so much violence against women. There's still so much inequality. And we see that, you know, according to the statistics in Europe, which are amazing. So these are the statistics by the European Institute for Gender Equality, IGA, that produces annual statistics, the Gender Equality Index. So we have like really, really credible data over the course of 10 years. And we see the progress is minuscule and that actually it'll take another hundred years to, to reach equality. Um, and we, I'm sure you can ask me afterwards why I think that is. There's still some very embedded systemic reasons for that. But I want to say I have seen improvement. I'm also extremely optimistic at the moment because I feel like we're at this real generation shift in, um, in consciousness about the system that's not working anymore. The fact that that system has changed has to be, has to embed decolonial thinking. It has to embed feminist thinking. 
Uh, it has to be intersectional. We have to embed also the understanding of care um, in our in our in our transition as well. So I I feel optimistic in a way um, about what's coming in the next twenty years. But for an example, I was at the um, a big conference in the European Parliament in May on Beyond Growth, uh, which was really astonishing. It was a gathering of several thousand people, I think around 1,500 in person in the Parliament, and then thousands online, went on for three days. Uh, it was hosted by uh, Philippe Lambert, a Belgian MEP, but it was also a cross-party um, hosting. And it really talked about this systems change that we have to build a society beyond growth, um, uh, beyond the current economic system, which drives growth as an obsession. We can't do that anymore. And a big driver of the whole conference was looking at climate and the climate catastrophe, but it also embedded in the thinking in the sessions um, some elements of social justice. Uh, so in a sense, it's quite a radical topic. Um, though uh, I think it's important to mention that President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, spoke at the uh, at the conference, which is quite remarkable. The level of engagement, commitment, and energy from the people at that conference was something quite extraordinary. And there were um, there was a lot of interest. So I had come with um, trying to bring feminist economics into the conversations about the economic transition, and there were within the session several sessions which looked at feminist economics or the care economy as part of this new economic system. And that came up also in the closing plenary. It was really integrated, this idea that we need a movement of movement, the women's movement, the climate justice movement, the anti-racist movement, um, the economic justice and tax justice movement. And it really felt that these things were coming together in a way I'd rarely seen before and which used to be discussed very much in the margins of small groups of usually radical feminists that were suddenly being discussed in a packed hemicycle in the European Parliament. And I felt like there was something, I felt very optimistic actually about the change that's coming and the um, people who are driving that change and being part of, part of that. Thank you for sharing, first of all. And uh, I think it's also very nice to kind of deconstruct all of those things that you're talking about, because I mean, the, my podcast is about climate, gender, security, and we often talk about those things kind of as, as a known thing, but then it's good to kind of explain what do you mean by gender equality? What do you mean by system change? Why gender and climate are connected? And I think the way you did it is fascinating and also very easy to understand. And it kind of connects us to our everyday life, but also to everything what's happening around us. I mean, it was also interesting for me to hear how you kind of connect to what you have been doing and then uh, how you were trying to bring the changes. And it's good to hear that you're optimistic because, yeah, I feel like a lot of people in Brussels who have been part of the change for a while, they get burnout and then they, they leave what they do and they start thinking about their own lives and their own families for very valid reasons because I feel like, I mean... I guess for you, you have what to compare it with. Like when I arrived to Brussels, I feel like I have changed already in the past five years as well from the way who I was five years ago into which workplace I arrived. And then once I started exploring different styles of leadership and different styles of workplaces, I understood that I don't want to do those anymore. And therefore I became independent actually. 
to kind of finding out my own way, but also collaborating among those spaces and trying to see to what extent I can fit in and bring the changes. And maybe here also the question to you, because currently you're also an independent consultant and you try to lead your own way. How come? Didn't you want to be maybe yourself part of the European Parliament or being one of those who is like in the center of power, at least in Brussels? And uh, yeah, does it does it help you right now being an independent that you could also maybe get to the places where you couldn't before? And um, maybe you can tell us a bit about the projects that you work on currently as well. Yeah, thank you so much, Sophia. So, um, yeah, I took the decision about 18 months ago, actually, to to go independent, to set up my own thing. And I did that for a number of reasons. Partly, you know, I've been working for, I realized I've been working for 30 years full-time for organizations. I've been in a very wide variety of leadership roles. Um, Secretary General, Director, been on board, President of Board, like very, very intense and exciting career. And I felt like I, I felt like the world was in such a rapid pace of change that in those organizational roles, you don't often get a chance to even process. You're, you're in the day-to-day running and lobbying, and it's brilliant. So I, I really, really enjoyed my time at uh, ActionAid, European Women's Lobby. I absolutely loved it. But you, you know, um, and your listeners, if they're in Brussels or they work around this stuff, they'll know this kind of conveyor belt of, European policy making and influence. And with the European Women's Lobby, I'd been really lucky to be involved with very successful pan-European and Brussels lobbying to bring about legislative change at European level for women's rights, for work for improving work-life balance, for pay transparency, for women in leadership. Uh, unbelievably, uh, given the situation 10 years ago, we were also able to make progress on legislative measures at European level to combat violence against women. But it's really amazing to be in the middle of that, um, that shaping of the political and legislative agenda during that time. And also, you know, I'm, I'm a systemic thinker and I'm a strategic thinker, and I was feeling that there was no space. And I looked around me to the women now. There were many women leading civil society organisations that we're all caught up in the day-to-day running of our organizations and very little time to actually step back and think about how we want to embed that in a more system of change approach, what's the role we want to play as our individual organizations and collectively. And also, how do we want to apply, apply our values and our experience in transforming the organizations we work for, so transforming the leadership? And I think right now we are stuck... Um, uh, across the board, definitely the institutions in Brussels, but I think it's more generally our, our national, local government, our civil society organisations and the private sector are all kind of stuck in old ways of organising and old ways of thinking about leadership. And I think this is actually dangerous for the transition we want to try and build together right now, or we should be trying to build together. Um, and so I... I decided that actually what I wanted to do was help uh, be those, that person who could support organizations in rethinking leadership. So be part of 
um, the thought leadership and the practical leadership around how do we build a new kind of organization? How do we build a new kind of leadership model uh, based on feminist leadership principles? And uh, the, and that actually the voice and uh, the role that I could play is almost like helping to midwife some of those processes and practices across different organizations, particularly with organizations who are not primarily women's organizations, but who are working across other like environmental climate justice or working on human rights more broadly or international development or other, other social justice kind of organizations who are increasingly wanting to integrate and embed a gender equality or a feminist approach in their work, in their thinking, and in the way they organize and lead and think. Because if you take feminism or gender equality seriously, you can't just integrate a bit of gender equality into your policy work. You immediately understand that everything has to shift. Um, you know, it's, there are very few people, I think, like myself out there who understand both the policy, the campaigning and the legislative part and the organizational design and leadership part. So for me, it felt like a, a natural thing to do. And the only way to do that is through um, becoming independent or forming my own organization and my own, my own work. So I have been um, for more than 12 years. This is a kind of interesting story and journey. For more than 12 years, I have been co-convening with other women, a network of women in leadership in civil society in Brussels. And that formed, I, I, we were trying to remember exactly when it was, but let's say it was 2010 or something like that. So about 13 years ago, I think there were six of us at the table when we said, actually, we need a space where women leaders who are working around systemic change, so who are working for um, civil society organizations who want to bring change can, can come together and support one another. And it was very explicitly to support one another to practice leadership differently. And so we were six of us at the time. And that group has now has grown and evolved over the years. But it is a group of women leaders in civil society in Brussels who come together to support each other in the practice of feminist leadership. And now I think our mailing list is around 130 women. And we meet maybe four times a year, not everybody, but usually around 20 women at each time. Uh, we create a really safe space to share the challenges of leading a feminist within our systems, within Brussels itself. And so I have a very wide network and a broad, broad conversation with lots of different women from many different sectors, also working on people's security, working on climate, um, working on human rights, working on development, working on social justice and, and disability rights, anti-racism, all sorts of different things. Um, and so I could really feel the need for some tailored support for those organizations to transform and, and change. So um, what do I do? And currently, one thing I'm doing, which is interesting for your listeners, is I'm in the, minute, the middle of uh, drafting a report looking at the state of women leaders in civil society. So we've done a survey and interview. So we surveyed 150 women. We have also interviewed around 25 women um, and we're now writing a report as a recommendation. This was this is a um, piece of work I'm doing together with uh, Celine Chavariat and Eloise Bodin. And we are uh, funded and, and supported by uh, FEPS, 
which is a think tank here in Brussels and the Green European Journal and um, Friedrich Ebert Stiftung and uh, Heinrich Böll Stiftung. So they're all supporting this piece of work um, and really looking at, so what's happening for women in leadership? Now we have all these women in leadership, but what, how are they doing after COVID, you know, with everything that's transformed in the workplace? And so we will be launching, we're doing some more work on finalizing that report and doing some focus groups in September. And then we'll be launching the report in October. But um, just to say that, that um, I think to say that people are in leadership in our systems change organizations are feeling overwhelmed and uh, highly stressed and are feeling that the donor community is not really supporting them in the way that the world and world of work has changed, in the way that our systems change work is changing, that our organizations are still stuck a bit in the past and are not adapted for a new way of leading and changing. Um, and then some recommendations that are going to flow from that, which I, I can come back and maybe talk about later, or Salim could do so in the, in the future. But that's been a really fascinating piece of work, really, just to, the, and even in the research itself, embedding feminist principles of care uh, and support for the women who participated uh, in, our, in, our, in our research. And then the other, one of the other things I do is I work with organizations directly with uh, leaders and teams um, in, um, in building and transforming organizational cultures and mechanisms to build, to bring feminist leadership principles into those organizations. Um, and I also run retreats and training programs for women um, and groups, mixed groups on feminist leadership uh, and how to put that into practice. And so um, we're having, for example, we've now in our retreat, they take place near in Jeanval uh, near Brussels. I think we've had around 60 participants now. So it's an incredible cohort of really inspiring and incredible women leaders who spend each time it's about 10, 10 women, uh, 10, 12 women each time. And we really look at um, the, the four dimensions of feminist leadership. And that is uh, power, care, collaboration, and inclusion that I mentioned earlier. And also the importance of sisterhood and the importance of uh, not being alone and not feeling alone is really, really vital in this work on feminist leadership. Um, so yeah, working with individuals and um, bringing them together in sisterhood is a very strong part of what I do. Working with teams and groups to help them transform their culture, to embed a new way of thinking about power, power sharing, care, collaborative working models and, and more inclusion. Um, and I do training workshops as, as well. And I'm also doing some work to actually think through how to integrate a gender perspective in the climate work in particular. In particular. So thinking through some of, uh, some of how to translate the incredible, inspiring and transformative eco-feminist thinking into the work of the climate, the climate movement. And there is really interesting collaborative of women working to transform for, for climate action and environment. There's also a new network in Brussels called We Can, so Women for Environment and Climate Action Network, which is bringing women across institutions and uh, civil society organisations together, really to reflect on how we can increase women's voice and the feminist perspective in the work on climate. So that if there's people who are listening who'd like to be part of that, they could perhaps let you know, and you can 
connect them I can connect see them that. that I I think that uh, what I take from your last speech networks. at least for sure is creating a lot of networks and collaborations and I think this is also part of the system change that you're trying to build that we move a bit from this competition mindset which I think once you arrive to Brussels you even start organically feeling it unfortunately like I, I was a victim of that myself and then I kind of had a time thankfully to step out of that mindset and like understand that this is not who I am this is not what I want to do and this is not how I want to do things. So you you step in. And I think, yeah, it starts from your own changes that you have within yourself. And I feel like, especially Brussels has just so much to offer. And we, like there is, you can be an independent, you can work for institution, you can join the civil society organization. So I feel like the collaborations here is a key. And just also because there are so many of us, we have to work together which is not always happening because we're stuck in our, as you were saying, day-to-day work. And I mean, you still manage to conduct all those networks and convene things despite having your nine-to-five job and probably it wasn't always nine-to-five only. (laughs) So well done on that. And also on kind of, yeah, realizing in time that as an independent, maybe you could do more and uh, have your own projects and have time to think and yeah, be be the, the writer of your own destiny in a way. So I think for now, this will be it. And uh, I think what you have already talked about poses more questions maybe than than answers, even in some cases. And I would love to continue talking about all of those things. But I'm sure we will have a chance to talk more, maybe in different settings. I will include all the links that you mentioned and all the networks as well in the description. So if anyone wants to join the weekend network or check the organizations that you work for, as well as the report, we can even put it in a bit later but we also have a newsletter so I'm happy to to promote the report with the newsletter as well and I think I'm curious myself and thank you also for filling the gap with data collection and kind of because we sort of all know the situation is not perfect and then we always talk like oh I heard a story here I heard the story there but it's always hard to kind of find a place where you're like here is the report we have surveyed 150 women this is what they say. And like, now you kind of cannot go against it. So I think that the report, what you're talking about is, is going to be very much needed. And uh, I hope that it pushes to some more changes in what have we discussed so far. So thank you for your time. And, um, do you have any last question to, or not question, maybe last words, last sentences for our listeners? Sure. Thank you so much, Sophia. And I'm really glad that you can include those links uh, at the bottom. I think for me, what was really important about what you just said is uh, highlighting the very competitive kind of culture of Brussels bubble, if you like. Um, and I think that is true. And I hear a lot of people saying that to, to me as well. So um, we, as, as feminists, I think it's really important that we um challenge that actually that competitive culture and that the very first thing you could do if you're not really sure what else to do um i think the very first thing you should do is find a network or a group of of other feminists and it could be men as well men feminists i tend to work with a lot of women not only but mainly but it could be a mixed group as well but people who really uh, share your values um and who can um you can where you can build each other's each other's power and your collective power and analysis and feel like um you can really make a difference and i think that kind of sisterhood and those networks are often 
the thing that people forget to invest in and their time, their time, I mean, because they're so busy doing the day-to-day stuff. Actually, that's the stuff in my long experience, which really creates change. Um, that really makes you feel less uh, lonely, where you also are emboldened and given courage from the other people that you know. So for invest in your own spaces or networks or, or, or little groups, even if it's just you and one other person. Um, if, um, and if you want to change things because you feel that there is too much competition, toxicity, uh, sexism, racism and homophobia, lack of inclusion, and actually our systems are defunct, you are right. You're right. So find your tribe and find other people who know that that's true and the way in which you can start to shift that. Because the time is not only now, it's yesterday for the change that needs to happen. And just to mention, there are also a lot of male groups as well. Because, I mean, I think we should we should be quite open. And I, I do not know who will be listening to us afterwards. But I know like Brussels Binder recently has launched a campaign, Male Ally. I think it's called hashtag male ally or something like this. So I do encourage, and I think we have many more men joining because they start, and it's not only because they care about women and their daughters, but I think that they start realizing that it is about them as much as it is about us. So I do hope that there will be more people joining the changes and um, a good point on networks. Just find your tribe and it will keep you going. That was it for this episode now we would love to hear from you. Let us know who should be our next guest. Maybe it's you? To get engaged, go to our website, buona.international, where you will find a box to share with us your ideas and requests regarding next episodes. Also, subscribe to our monthly newsletter and follow us on social media. Talk soon! Talk soon!